fighting for freedom every day. You as the individual, you have the power. You don't have to join a union. You go in as an entry-level position. You get the experience that you need. And then as you work up, you get better at your job, which means they pay you more. If they don't pay you more, then you go to another company to show what you've learned and what your value is to where you can get more. If they really don't like that, then you can go and start your own damn business because we have a free market laissez-faire capitalist society allegedly, to where you can actually go off and do your own thing. This is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. You are darn right. It's The Voice of Reason. Hey, welcome into the program. You finally made it the final day before the great Thanksgiving Turkey Day that is tomorrow. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone out there. You're excited. I know I'm excited about it. Not just for a day of relief and a day of sighing and taking a day off, but a day to indulge, to enjoy, to kick back, maybe to take a nap, maybe to eat massive amounts of turkey before I take a nap. And then just repeat the process all over again, (laughs) because that's what you have to do. Welcome into the show. This is The Voice Reason. I am Andy Hoosier, broadcasting live out of the heart of the nation here in Wichita, Kansas, on our flagship radio station. We are all over the country, radio, TV, live streaming, podcasting, however you watch or listen to the show. We love you to death. Welcome aboard your Millennial General reporting for duty, like we do on the program every weekday here. Coming up on the bottom of the hour, Daniel Natal. He is a contributor to The New American. We've had him on the show before. He's going to join to talk about a little bit of history and the evolution of our federal government. The separation of powers, the three branches of government, the form of government that we're supposed to have compared to where we're at today and where we're going in the distant future if we continue on the roads that we currently are. So we'll get to that. We have some Thanksgiving things. I don't want to talk about politics too terribly bad the entire show today. But at the same time, the Democrats never let up. So can we honestly, can we honestly take a break when they continue to ram down their socialist crap agenda down our throats every single day? I want to talk about things that we're thankful for this year. We'll get to that. We have the early voting for the state of Georgia in the Senate runoff election coming up starting this Saturday. Early voting already kicking off because that's just two weeks away, which is really hard to believe. And are we prepared for that election with apparently Warnock is in the lead with the early polls right now. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but we'll see as we get closer to the election uh, runoff there in Georgia. So we got a lot to talk about today, and it's always a pleasure to have you join us for the show. If you're listening live or if you're listening via podcast on the interweb or if you listen to our video streams, however you tune into the program, first off, welcome. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Uh, And more than likely, you're probably traveling to go visit family and friends this year. As apparently, according to AAA nationwide, we're going to see pre-pandemic travel levels this year with flight and with travelers on the road at near 54 to 56 million people across the nation. That's a lot of individuals. That's awesome. I think that's great because we're getting back. I don't know why we would drive. I got to be honest, I'm not traveling anywhere. Number one, because I only have a day off before we're back here at the studios the next day. So I'm not going to go anywhere. But I wouldn't go anywhere even if I had the opportunity to as well because I wouldn't want to drive with this ridiculously high gas prices. I'm just not going to do it. I don't know why I would want to spend $30 an extra, uh, 30 cents an extra a gallon per gallon of gas. Or even if we look at prior to, I don't want to say that because that's year over year. That's really unfair. we got to honestly look at where it should be, which is the Trump-era level of gas prices, which is about $2 a gallon. So we're about a dollar a gallon over what we should be right now. So until it gets back to that, like, pre, not pre-pandemic, but pre-Biden levels, <laughs> I really don't want to go anywhere. 
I'm kind of a hermit, and I think I'm just going to stay at home for a while. But uh, they say that the travel is going to be exciting. However, as Fauci rightly or, I guess, incorrectly pointed out during his press conference just a couple days ago, that the next concern is with COVID-19 and a re-breaking out of certain variants of COVID-19 with the gathering of friends and family because, obviously, we don't have the mask mandates to tell us to live our lives anymore. So that means... That means that we're just horrible human beings that only think about ourselves and we're going to spread the virus and kill people on a daily basis. As the Wall Street Journal, Thanksgiving poses the next COVID-19 test as U.S. looks to dodge the severe surge. New Omicron subvariants are taking over as authorities urge the booster shots as you go into the Thanksgiving break. They're urging the shots. They're urging the testing. Go and get tested. COVID cases are on the rise. RSV cases are on the rise. Flu cases are on the rise. And if you don't get tested or get your booster shot, you'll probably kill somebody at the family dinner. Which is, okay, you know what? All the power to you. If this new Omicron subvariants are such a threat, then why haven't we heard about them for the last, I don't know, six months or so? Nonetheless, happy Thanksgiving as they try to scare you into not visiting Aunt Susie going into the Thanksgiving break tomorrow. Here's the fascinating part about tomorrow, and here's our latest in what's trending of the day. What's trending today? Going into Thanksgiving. There has been a push over the last few years for the from Democrats in general, the political realm in general, don't talk about politics, don't talk about religion at the dinner table, especially at the family reunions. That's probably why most of the family reunions in my family don't necessarily like me showing up because <laughs> because that's all I talk about. That's what I do for a living. I talk politics. That's all I know. I don't follow sports. I don't know sports. I mean, I know the sports. I know of the sports. I played them. I've coached them. But to watch them on television, I just don't do it. I have zero interest in watching the 14 NFL games tomorrow. I just don't care. I don't care about watching the basketball game. It makes no interest to me in any way, shape, or form. I'm going to watch movies while I eat. I will probably play some sort of video game with little voice of reason, and that will be the extent of my day. I will not be watching any NFL, and I'm sure that many listeners here feel the same way due to some of the politics of the NFL, or maybe you are watching and you've gotten over that stuff. All the power to you. Either way, I don't really care. However, I encourage the opposite when it comes to talking politics and religion at the dinner table because that I think is where we've made the vast mistake of the young generation not understanding what's going on of not hearing the adults talk about politics at the dinner table and understanding what's going on in the world because the only bit of news that they get nowadays is on the Tweety and on social media that's in the echo chamber and the algorithm only shows them what they want to see or what the algorithm wants them to see. So I think we need to reverse that, and we need to talk about politics and religion at the dinner table to have the conversations. And if someone doesn't like it, then I don't really care. But with that mindset that's been floating around for years and years and years, the Biden administration is starting to change that as well. As they've come out, one of the top uh, White House aides, Ronald Klain, has posted the list from the Biden administration's top accomplishments for when chatting with your uncle at Thanksgiving. Now, if I don't know what accomplishments those could be, so let's read down the list, shall we? Because Joe Biden has come out with his list on the top accomplishments on how to talk politics at the dinner table for Thanksgiving. Afterwards, I'll give you the voice of reasons. Thanksgiving talking points when your aunt slash uncle, meaning the other... (laughs) try to chat with you at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Let's start with Joe Biden's for a second, shall we? According to Ronald Klain, White House 
staffer, whoever that may be. President Joe Biden's top accomplishments were when chatting with your uncle at Thanksgiving. Oh, they run down the list for you. So you can be very clear on what the Joe Biden administration has done. Number one, tackling inflation and lowering costs. Gas prices are down $1.35 a gallon since June, and inflation is moderating. Unsnarling supply chain issues to lower the cost of goods. Saving Americans with hearing loss up to $3,000 on hearing aids. That's a big win for you there, I guess. And tackling junk fees that cost Americans billions like surprise overdraft charges. We'll get into breaking some of these down, but real quickly, isn't that a bank's thing, like a private sector bank, to tell you on whether you're actually going to be paying overdraft charges on your bank account if you overdraw your account? You shouldn't be overdrawing your account, but if you do, wouldn't that be a bank thing based on the contract you signed when you open up a checking account? Kind of weird. Number two, took on big Joe Biden took on Big Pharma and won, lowering prescription drugs and health care costs. Capping annual out-of-pocket prescription drug costs at $2,000 for seniors on Medicare. Capping insulin co-pays at $35 per prescription for seniors on Medicare. And lowering health insurance premiums by $800 annually for Americans who buy insurance through the Affordable Care Act. Number three, worked with Republicans to rebuild America's infrastructure. Rebuilding roads and bridges, investing in passenger rail and public transit, expanding affordable high-speed internet for all Americans, and removing all lead pipes ensures clean drinking water in all communities. I don't know about you, but I kind of like my lead pipes. The hell are you talking about? Number four. <laughs> I know, right? Hey, hey, here's the crazy guy that nowhere he's just drinking out of the lead pipes. Number four worked with Republicans to make more in America by passing the Chips in Science Act. That includes investing in semiconductor manufacturing and other advanced cutting-edge technologies here in America. Number five, brought together Republicans and Democrats to pass the first meaningful gun safety legislation in nearly 30 years. This is, again, all the top list of accomplishments from the Joe Biden administration to talk about during Thanksgiving, where he says we remove firearms from dangerous individuals, expanded mental health services in schools, and supported school safety with narrows the boyfriend loophole to keep guns out of the hands of convicted dating partners. Number six, despite global challenges, we're making progress with 10 million created jobs, unemployment near record lows, unemployment near, uh, again, they repeated themselves, unemployment near record lows, including for black and Hispanic Americans, more small businesses launching than ever before, and rallied the world in defense of Ukraine in the face of Putin's aggression. And number seven on the Joe Biden list of accomplishments to mention to your family during Thanksgiving, according to the White House staffers, Republicans in Congress are extreme, proposing a national ban on abortion, planning to put Medicare and Social Security on the chopping block, trying to raise costs on Americans by repealing the Inflation Reduction Act. Those evil, horrible Republicans that are just trying to take away your rights left and right. Now, is any of that true? Ladies and gentlemen, is any of that true in any way, shape, or form? I would have to say... No, no. Sorry, the fact checkers of the Voice of Reason have come out and said that that is a near a half a percent truthful response there across the board. Uh, I don't know about anything regarding hearing aids or overdraft charges for businesses and banks, but if that's what you want to claim, then all the power to you. 
Uh, is any of this true? Absolutely not. In fact, we have our voice of reason top five list to talk top five list to talk about during your Thanksgiving gathering for your aunt and uncle to try and debate with you about politics. Should we do it? Our top ten list, or top five list, I guess. I don't have ten. I only have five because it only took five to review everything that was on that list. Number one, as he goes on to tackle inflation and lower gas prices, saying he lowered gas prices down by $1.35 a gallon since June and inflation is beginning to moderate. A very simple response if they use these tactics on you is say, well, sorry, but gas is still a dollar higher than when the Trump administration was in, so you still have a ways to go on that one. And oh, by the way, inflation may be moderating. Inflation may be leveling itself out. It's still a near 9% inflation rate across this nation. And you cannot blame supply chain issues unless you blame the Biden administration for blocking the ports from China coming into California. You go after the semi-drivers that were trying to transport the goods across the board. You've been advocating for the railroad unions to try and strike across the nation that would put a major damper onto the supply chain. And also, go ahead and say that things are leveling out, but if an 85 9% inflation rate is leveling out to a positive level and you're still a dollar above per gallon of gas compared to the Trump administration, then your level of standards of success are extremely low and absolutely pathetic. How hard is that to count? Again, these are like, it's like picking candy at a candy store. It's like picking on the little kid on the playground here. This is easy. Should we continue? We'll do that when we come back here after the the break. Got to take one right around the corner here on a Wednesday, the pre-Thanksgiving celebration here on The Voice Reason. We've got a lot to get to. Trying to build up your arson to meet the family and friends, to go into battle as we're showing our thankfulness for our Thanksgiving at 2022. Lots more coming up. Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Bring some reason into your day. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Here's what we need. I love, maybe we should do a montage on Friday or on Monday after the weekend if everybody's celebrating maybe after the holidays or something over the weekend if you do this and if you start talking politics hit a recorder on your phone send it to me maybe we should make a montage on this program of the fun family political debates of 2022 (laughs) wouldn't that be great i think we should do that hey how was your thanksgiving it was great i put uncle sam in his place i put Susie q in her place that would be fun so, again, if you uh, go to your Thanksgiving dinner, you start doing this, hit the record button in your phone, send it over, and we'll play it here uh, on Monday next week. The Biden administration really trying to push their agenda because, remember, it's failing, so they have to try and start it at the grassroots. They're not good at doing the grassroots messaging, so this is their attempt at doing so. Hey, if you're going to talk politics, because obviously it's going to come up at the dinner table about, oh, wow, this is a ridiculously expensive dinner this year. Oh, the turkey was ridiculous. The shortage of the turkeys and the bird flu that killed off a lot of the population and the high prices of the inflation and the expense of the turkey. It was ridiculous. I can't believe we even got a turkey to celebrate Thanksgiving this year. The Biden administration 
It's out there telling everybody, hey, when you go to dinner, don't say it was from us. Just say that we've leveled out inflation and it's the unsnarling supply chains that we're trying to uh, get back on track and get everything working again. It's not our fault. It was the Trump's fault from two years ago on why Thanksgiving was so expensive this year. Uh, In COVID. In COVID. Always got to play the victim. It's always COVID there down the right. As they run down these, again, we don't need to go down every single bullet point because it's stupid and it's really funny to watch them squirm because just trying to buy a Thanksgiving dinner is painful enough for individuals. Just trying to travel and get an airplane ticket to drive across country to try and get the gas prices, whatever you're doing, you're feeling the brunt of it and they don't want that to look bad upon them. And now that the elections are over, things are going to start getting worse because they don't have to look good during elections. I've told you, they've artificially kept everything low during election time to make things not look as bad as what they were. But they can't conceal that for another two years. It's going to burst. The bubble will pop and the ugliness of the economy will start showing its mug here relatively soon. And I'm talking inflation rates that are going to be at Jimmy Carter levels. I'm talking gas prices that are going to be at the gas shortage freakout level of the 1970s where you can't get any, or when you can, it's going to be $10 a gallon. We we have to. We have to. You can't stop drilling. Buy more. The people that we're buying it from globally stop, stop drilling as well and stop producing as much, and then try and keep gas prices low. The stock market has it lowering now. It's below $80 a barrel. It's like 77 whatever uh, a barrel right now, so it's getting lower, so we could see some low gas prices for the holidays by January. Boom, baby. The holidays are done. Uh, politics is done. The looking good is done. The transition happens when the Republicans take over the House of Representatives. And then by the end of January, February is when everything will skyrocket. And then guess what? That's going to be the arson for the Democrats and for the Biden administration to say, look, Republicans took over. Republicans got that majority in the House. And all of a sudden, baby, look at that. They're screwing up our agenda. And everything started going haywire because they're stopping what we have to do. We know this game. The economy takes time. The economy doesn't react immediately unless you cut taxes. When you go the other direction, you deregulate and you cut taxes, then everybody's great. I don't have to pay as many taxes. I'm going to hire more people. I'm going to expand the business. I'm going to buy a new building. I'm going to construct a new building. I'm going to buy a new product. I'm going to expand my business. This is going to be great. But it goes the opposite direction when you start implementing the new regulations and the new taxes. It's a very simple concept. You don't have to have an economics degree to understand that when the government takes more, you have less, and therefore you can't do as much. And giving it to somebody else is not the great way to make the economy boom. You're putting a glass ceiling on everybody because now they're absolutely dependent. These talking points from the Biden administration are lies, and they're absolutely pathetic. I can't wait to hear how listeners, how you completely shred Uncle Bob when he shows up to the Thanksgiving dinner wearing his... Oh, wait a second. I haven't seen a single Joe Biden sign or hat or T-shirt or anything in support of him because no one likes him and they try to cower and put their blinders on whenever he opens his mouth and says something stupid. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. When Reason Meets Radio. You're listening to The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. All right, y'all. Welcome back into the program on a pre-Thanksgiving celebration here on The Voice of Reason. A Wednesday trying to cram that 10 pounds of reason into that 5-pound bag. Trying to rebrand 
the millennial generation, one radio listener at a time. Multiple radio stations, TV, live streaming, podcasting, however you watch, listen. We love you to death. Welcome aboard your millennial general doing his thing like we do every day here. Real quick as we get into our guest, kind of a lead up to this. There is, oh, and by the way, real quickly, as we wrap up the last conversation as well, the Biden administration's quote-unquote top accomplishments to talk about during Thanksgiving, you can find it on twi- on the Tweety. I am really enjoying a lot of the comments on there that have had a remade version of the Biden's top accomplishments, which are absolutely nothing. So if you want to see those, then you're more than welcome to. I'll start sharing some of those out on the social media, which you can find me. At Hoosier Reason, H-O-O-S-E-R Reason, on all the social media. Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, uh, Instagram, TikTok. I don't really care. I'm on all of them. Uh, I think I mentioned Twitch as well. Twitch.tv, kind of our uh, TV stream, which we have on multiple different sites. But you can check it out. We'll start sharing some of those feeds on there. All right, real quickly here, as we kind of shift gears and talk about the makeup of government, the shifting of power, the focal point of where we like to put our elected officials and our leaders and the power in our federal government, The obviously the big race right now, everybody's still focusing on because the elections aren't done yet outside of Donald Trump announcing his run for 2024, is the latest polls show that Donald Trump is over Ron DeSantis in the presidential Republican primary. That's interesting. The latest poll as well shows that Republicans want Mitch McConnell out as the Senate minority leader as 62% of Republicans show that they want him out. The other one as well coming out of Georgia with the runoff in the state of Georgia, which early voting starts on Saturday this weekend. Hard to believe, but the Democrat Warnock is leading Herschel Walker by four points in the early polls just four weeks or two weeks out from the election day in the Senate runoff in Georgia. What does that mean? What the heck, man? We'll talk about some of that here in just a little bit, but we'll get into our what's trending of the day. What's trending today? Happy to have this guy back on the program to talk about shifting in powers, where the power lies in our federal government right now. He is a teacher of business uh, business ethics. He's also a news analyst and commentator for the New American Contributor. They're excited to have back on the program with us here, Mr. Daniel Natal. Daniel, how are you, my friend? Hey, I'm doing really great. Thanks for having me back on, Andy. Yeah, yeah, you bet. It's good to talk to you again, and happy Thanksgiving to you and the family. It's been interesting to watch the evolution of our federal government and where the power lies, and it seems like the presidential race is always more of a celebrity contest on who's more popular as opposed to what the policies actually are. But does the executive branch, do you think, right now in this time, actually have the most amount of power, or where does the majority of power lie, do you think, in our government? Well, I mean, uh, I did a presentation about this recently, and it was um, it, it just occurred to me how strange, you know, how, how far we've drifted. Um, like in republics, in America as a republic, um, the Senate is always the center of power, the seat of power, like in the Roman Republic, it's the Roman Senate. And uh, so in the United States, when we first created uh, the country under the Articles of Confederation, our, our federal branch, our federal government only consisted of one branch, a Senate. There was no president. There was no, you know, there, there were no other, I mean, it was really pared down. It was just the Senate. Yeah. And then when we created um, the, the new constitution, we kind of made uh, the government called a, uh, Cicero called it a mixed form of government, which is based on the three classical forms, monarchy, aristocracy, and uh, republic. And so Cicero said you should have, you know, the, the best parts of all of these aspects of government, if you mix them together, and they might offset the worst parts. And so Rome had that sort of government. They had consul, right, standing for monarchy. They had the Senate, of course, standing for Senate. And then they had, you know, like a House of Plebeians, which was, was stood for Republic. And the United States kind of really 
After the Articles of Confederation, we set up our government like that, where we had a president standing in for monarchy, we had the Senate, and then we had the House of Representatives standing in for republic. Um, so this, those are the three, three uh, branches originally, uh, conceptualized. And um, people will, will probably you know, be chomping at the bit to uh, say, oh, wait, but what, what, what about the courts? Aren't the courts the third branch of government? But um, initially, no. I mean, the, the, it was those three branches. Uh, and they were called in the Constitution the, fir- the first branch. Senators were called members of the first branch. Congressmen were called me- members of the second branch. And the president mentioned third in the Constitution was called you know, the head of the third branch of government. And even uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg makes a reference to this. There's a quote. Uh, I'll read it to you really quickly. It says, in 1853, Judah Benjamin declined the nomination of President Millard Fillmore to become Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Just elected U.S. Senator from Louisiana, Benjamin preferred to retain its first branch post. This suggests that the U.S. Supreme Court had not yet become the co-equal branch that it is today. Um, so it, it, it is very interesting how the, the, the conception of our government has radically changed, I mean, even since the early 20th century, um, where, you know, nobody really considered the Supreme Court a branch of government, um, you know, where now we're told it is. But the point being is that the Senate used to be the center of our domestic policy, the center of the power in the country, as it is in all kind of republics. And then it's it's been since shifted over to the executive branch in a very strange and historical way. Yeah, I don't like it shifting over to the executive branch as much as it was. I like a lot of the power staying in Congress, but it is. I, I am glad, I think, personally, that we did evolve, I think, from just a pure republic with only a Senate because we've seen how well that worked. And we see, you know, for example, you mentioned like Rome. I mean, ancient Rome was the prime example of that to where we somehow would always like to focal and center our power into one individual and they rid the Senate of all their power and it was easy to do so. So I like the breakup that we have now, but now it seems like the Senate doesn't have really a whole lot of power of anything. They can't do anything without the secondary lower chamber of Congress, which is the House of Representatives. They really can't pass any major legislation without the House or with the signature of the president. So now we've gone from where the Senate was really the most powerful branch to now uh, just only a small cog in the big machine, it seems like. Well, you have to remember, I mean, the Senate means the state, right? So the state, like in a country called the United States, of America, the states originally had all the power, yeah. you know, and the Senate are the, the delegates sent from those states. So once, you know, the, the Senate loses power, that's basically the states losing power, you know, where, where all of a sudden we're basically being ruled. Like Alexander Hamilton um, was, uh, he was an Anglophile, and he wanted the United States, he was terrified of the United States being a republic, and he wanted it to be a monarchy. And in fact, he actually uh, led the, the charge to recruit, uh, I think it was a Hohenzern uh, German um, prince to be the king of America. He wanted a king and a central bank because that's what they were used to in England, yeah. right? So, so when they created the you know the second constitution, they basically wanted that setup, and so it was a fight always between Thomas Jeffersonian you know conceptions of America, you know where the states are ruling, versus the, the Alexander Hamilton version of America where there's a king and a central bank, and so that's since the founding of the country, that's really been, been the, the fight between the globalists and the nationalists. And I mean, it's it, it's phenomenal that that's that's still you know the, the, uh, the truth today. Uh, uh, for your audience, it's a, a really interesting book to read on this, and by none other than uh, John F. Kennedy. When he was a senator, he wrote Profiles of Courage, and it's the history of the Senate. And he talks about when the Senate was first created, um, they were not really alive that much with the House of Representatives. Yeah. They were far more alive with the, with the executive branch. Like they they used to be the cabinet of the president. You know, so so they they've been diminished greatly in power. So I mean. It, so that was basically the state had a check over the executive branch because, like, the Secretary of the Interior, the Secretary of War, the Secretary of this, the Secretary of all of those were the senators. So it was the state.
stake in the executive branch, just like this with today when the, the Senate and the, and the executive branch pick Supreme Court justices or pick diplomats or ambassadors. You know, so, so in the original formulation, the Senate was vastly more tied to the executive branch than it was to the House of Representatives. Wow. That is fascinating. Well, now let's take it another step further, and let's talk about the change of the Senate on how they were actually nominated and actually chosen to go to Washington, D.C. after the 17th Amendment uh, back in, what, 1913 or whatever it was ratified that shifted it from yeah. the state governments to actually choose them, like you mentioned, to actually being voted on the people. What did that do to this entire process and the power of the Senate? Well, I mean, originally, um, basically, John Stuart Mill, in considerations of representative government back in 1861, he said that, just like in England, uh, England was a tripartite government, right, where they had the king, and then they had the House of Lords and the House of uh, Commons. And, you know, he noted that the United States government, you know, took that Ciceronian kind of formulation of a three-part government. And uh, I noticed, by the way, in England, the courts are not a branch. <laughs> There's three branches, the courts are not one of the branches. Um, but, uh, but so anyway, so he said that in America, it was, it was just like in England. He said that you had to give the people some form of representation or else there would be a revolution. So, um, in, in, and he noted that in our, our, our Constitution, that the House of Representatives was the only House that was directly elected. He said, however, the Senate and the President were both elected in a two-step process to kind of lift them above demagoguery and, and, and low-party politics. Um, so that two-part process was, of course, the people would vote on the state, legis- state legislators, and the state legislators in step two would install the senators. Uh, just like Supreme Court justices, nobody gets upset or grouse if Supreme Court justices are not popularly elected, because then you would get a lot of, you know, a lot of lower behavior, even though, you know, I mean, the arguments could be made that that didn't go exactly as But nevertheless, the president, too, was uh, done in a two-step process. Yeah. What was supposed to happen is not political parties, but it's supposed to be you vote for your state legislator, and then the state legislators send delegates to an electoral college. And in the second step, the electors from the electoral college pick the president. It was not it was not ever supposed to be popularly elected. So it, it is fascinating how far we've drifted, you know, since you know from the this original born that would have had much more checks and balances. Like if we reverted to the, the Constitution as written, um, the Senate would have much more power, thereby the state would have much more power, and they would be kind of separated. And Kennedy makes a really good point. Kennedy says um, that before the Civil War, he said that the Senate was filled with philosophers and statesmen. He said after the Civil War, they basically were the senator from Big Oil, the senator from the Railroad Trust, the senator from the, the banking industry, et cetera. And, uh, and he said, so, you know, it, it, it ceased to be, especially after they were popularly elected, uh, after 1913, um, they, they, they ceased to be representatives of the state, so much as representatives of financial interests. Now that you have to be elected in a popular race, you need money. Now that you need money, you go to an oligarch. You yeah. oligarch funds. So now you're representing the oligarch. You're not representing your state. So that was a very, very clever tactic. Oh, yeah. to basically kind of you know, disrupt the power of the state. Oh, how the mudslinging began. And you're right, the dirty politics and the low-level politics that are now being played when it wasn't supposed to be that way. Got to take a hard break here real quick. It is Daniel Tall with The New American, thenewamerican.com. You can see all the great writings and stuff they have going on there. I want to talk about moving forward, what branch now has the power and how we can get back to maybe some normalcy in the country. With Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom every day. The Voice of Reason 
with Andy Hoosier. Yeah, reason, common sense, rationale. That's what we try to do here, especially as we go into a Thanksgiving. I'm excited to hear about some of the conversations around the dinner table with family and friends for Thanksgiving regarding the politics and religion. The Biden administration saying that, hey, here's our talking points. Spread the message for us because we can't do it ourselves. <laughs> How well is that going to work? Is it going to work? No, no. Okay. All right. Making sure. Making sure. Got a few minutes left here as we wrap up the program today. We're talking with the New American. Go and check them out, thenewamerican.com. Daniel Natal with us here as he teaches business ethics. Also a news analyst, commentator for the New American. As we talk about the makeup, the evolution of our government, the government's power, government separation, the branches of government that we've had, and oh, how things have changed. Now we've gone from essentially the Senate and... That's about it with uh, the president or what wanted to be a monarchy at some point to the three branches that was the Senate, then the House, then the president. Now we have really four branches, I say, with our two chambers of Congress, our president, the judicial branch, and now our fourth branch that is the bureaucratic uh, administrative state that is completely um, untransparent, that has no oversight, that is not elected from the American people. And I think that's the biggest frustrating part. So between those four now, Daniel, looking at it today, I've heard the argument that the Supreme Court is now the strongest branch of the government because they, once they make a decision with their opinions, then that's the legality. It's either constitutional or it's not constitutional, period, end of story. Uh, the fourth branch of government with that bureaucratic state because we have no oversight or power there. Where does the power lie now in our federal government? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great point, you know, um, in, in terms of just to, just to be clear, uh, when Montesquieu wrote The Spirit of the Laws, and that was the second most quoted book uh, that the you know, founding fathers read from after the Bible. Mm. And in The Spirit of the Laws, he actually places the courts under the executive branch. Sure. And so does, uh, so does uh, John Stuart Mill, considerations on the represent- representative government. The courts were originally under the executive branch. And you see this um, today. Modern people talk about when uh, George Washington sent the first Supreme Court Justice John Jay to England to negotiate a treaty, and they said, oh, well, this is a violation of the separation of powers because he's sending a Supreme Court justice as an underling. But when you go back to that time period, John Jay understood himself to be under the executive branch. He never said that he was a separate branch of you know, he, he dutifully did with the branch. So it, it is fascinating, the evolution of, of the, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, even into the 19th and early 20th century, nobody considered the Supreme Court a separate branch of government. And so that's a very you know, kind of new thing that's been foisted on, on, the, on the populace. Um, and, and telling them that we have a, a two-headed branch of work, you know. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's very strange. But um, one of the tip-offs as well, the, the Senate was originally kind of the, the original seat of power, other than just historically the republics, you know, the Senate in any republic is always supposed to be the, the center of power, um, is the fact that in the Constitution, congressmen are only given two years. Uh, the president's only given four years, a four-year term. Senators are given a six-year term. They're mentioned first in the Constitution, and they're given the longest term, which means they're, they're, they're given the longest amount of influence, which is the most power. You know, so so that was originally the states. You know, so the states had the longest influence; they had the most power of the federal government. And for us to basically take over, we have to ignore it. We we concentrate so much on the, on the executive. We concentrate so much on the president, and we forget that if we took the Senate back, you know, like how much power we would be able to to you know exert. You know, the scene of the state, or if we, and you see the left kind of freaking out about the electoral college. Like, what would happen if the state legislatures said, hey, let's follow the Constitution? It's the state legislatures that pick the president. Mm-hmm. We'd, we'd instantly get rid of, you know, uh, questions about, you know, irregularities in voting and, you know, mail in ballots and all, because all of that would be irrelevant. Yeah. It would just be 
the electors in the college picking the president as it was up until 1824. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was going to be my next question is uh, outside of the Senate, when we look at the executive branch in this, I mean, we have this national popular vote. You talked about the, the lack of education. Now, we don't we're not aware of that we still have a two step process at electing the president of the United States, even with this push for a national popular vote with trying to rid ourselves of the Electoral College or at least have them vote and cast their ballots for the president based on the popular vote nationwide. Uh, there is such a lack of understanding in this process is that if we continue down this road, then I am concerned on where the elections could go in the future. We've got about 30 seconds here, Daniel. You, can, you wrap it up. Yeah, um, just uh, telling people that if they really want to take power back, the solution is, number one, their local government. And number two, we have to start concentrating on what the left is panicking about, the Electoral College. Um, if we actually get the state legislators to take that back and exercise its full constitutional power, I mean, that would be the state finally having, having a check and balance on, the, on an out-of-control runaway uh, you know, federal, federal layer of government. Watch so, them squirm. I'll leave it there. Yeah. Watch them squirm. <laughs> if we tried to promote that, that would be fantastic. It's Daniel Natal, the New American, the New com. Daniel, happy Thanksgiving, brother. we got to get you back on the show again soon. Thanks, man. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Hey, appreciate it. All right, that does it for us today. We're out tomorrow. Back at it on Friday live. We will be here live on Friday and have some fun to get you set for the weekend going into next week. Until then, be your own voice of reason. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. We'll see you on the radio.